listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho. And on this episode, we're going to talk about play by Sherry Kramer. Um, the play is called David's Red-Haired Death. Woo. Now, I feel like Sherry Kramer's a player that we mentioned on the show quite a few times. Yes. And we have yet to read one of Sherry's plays. So I'm so excited to talk about him. Yeah, Sherry came to talk to us a couple of times at Iowa. So we met her and um, learned from her. And she's such a great teacher and so good at giving feedback on plays. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we haven't talked about a play by hers yet. So I had read this play um, in undergrad, I think when I was like 18 or 19 years old. and But I've never seen a production of it. And it was really interesting to return to it and read again this play that I read when I was first starting to think about playwriting. Mm. Um, Wait, so you read this play before you met Sherry Kramer? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you geeked out? I yeah, I mean I when I first read it I was like, what is this? I didn't even know you could do something like this in a play. And it was when mm-hmm. I really first started thinking about structure and nonlinear mm-hmm. narrative and um yeah. And of course I was very excited about because I was just coming out and I was in my gay, gay, gay stage. <laughs> and I was very excited about this play with two women kissing each other. <laughs> whoa I I could see little Sam just like whoa (laughs) I'm gonna color my hair red no yeah yeah but you had some thoughts um what were your your first impressions Sarah oh yeah my first impressions um well right off the bat I saw the character description that they're just the those describing the hair of women mm. instead of like you know sometimes the character description has personality like oh you know jeans is shy and is introverted but, you know there's get some more personality trait, but it was just description of the hair and the color right. of the hair and age and that was it so yeah. that i thought that was a, such an interesting way to think about the my you know just jumping into the play but right before jumping into the play uh it's just the different hair like okay there's so there's bright red hair and there's auburn hair there's brownish hair okay like red hair so um that was just it was that so that was just an interesting way to get into the play it's just thinking about hair first yeah i feel like should i read it yeah so we have Jean. her hair is deep rich dark auburn red she's 30 Marilyn, her hair is bright red true light red she is 30 so yeah, you're right. Like all we know from them from the beginning, from the character description is the color of their hair. And yeah. somehow that stands in for their personality in a way. Yeah. And I think later in the, we find out that it's, it's not even the real hair color. Right. <laughs> right. Which right? is funny. But they lie about it. They lie they're about bo- it. And they're both yeah. like, oh, it's so great to meet someone who's a real redhead. Yeah. <laughs> like me. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly off tangent, but like I have, I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned on the show, but definitely, I think I mentioned to you, Sam, about when I colored my hair red. That was in what? School. Wait, you did? Oh, yeah. I never told you. Yeah. I colored no. my hair red. So um, I was 11 years old. Oh, my god! And I was really excited because I saw, you know, on TV and like K-pop stars, everyone just like colored their hair this like beautiful orange red hair, like just like <laughs> crazy. And I was like, 
I want to color my hair red. Like, I'm so excited. I went to the local pharmacy, Walgreens or CVS. I walked in. I got a box of like red hair dye, went home. I did it by myself, colored my hair red. The bathroom sink, let it sit on my head for like half an hour. I washed it out and I was like, cool, I like it. And next day I go to school and every boy, every boy in that my class were just calling me fire crotch. What? <laughs> They're like, you got, oh your, you got your fire crotch. Um, oh my God. And I was just like, I was just so humiliated. Like I just like, what? I thought – Oh, this is cool, you know. And glamorous. And glamorous, but I get the way I did it. Just it was not the right hair tint color or or something. So I just remember just like PE or something. I would just like go off to the side and kind of hide because I was like oh. in my head. I was like, oh, and um, and then. But did you like the way it looked? Forget the middle school boys. Um, I at first I did until you know I didn't know that you kind of have to like maintain it or like treat it so it was like changing color by the way you know it was just like first it was just like beautiful like kind of this like cool dark red and started then it was like turning like orange red <laughs> orange and then i started to look like a clown like it was you know and i had like really th- i had like really thick big hair you know like a lot of hair mm. um so it just looked wild um and eventually i would like I was like, I can't live like this. And I, I colored my hair pitch black mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and let it grow out that way. But yeah. Wow. It's funny that no, no, my mom didn't stop. Nobody stopped me. Everyone just like, let me do it. <laughs> it. They just knew you had to live and learn. Yeah. So that's my red hair story. Wow. <laughs> I have never dyed my hair any color. That's mm. good. That's good. Well, maybe we should talk about what red hair means in this play. Mm. So, because they're constantly talking about, like, um, you know, how the red-haired woman is supposed to play a certain role in the relationship or, like, the way men react to redheads. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, one thing that I thought was so interesting was um, they're both, like, waiting for the other one to make the first move and they talk about how the redhead is the one who's supposed to like initiate the kiss or whatever Mm. um but both of them are waiting um and I thought that was really interesting that like they see each other as um so similar to themselves Mm -hmm. and yet they want they want the other to be different too at the same time. Yeah. Um, also, I noticed that it kind of, I don't know if it's like stereotyping, but like the redheads, like what, what we usually associate with redheads. It's like, I think it was it's like totally stereotyping. It was, like, it was like mentioning of like the Irish girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was like McDonald's redhead. Like, like <laughs> of mcdonald's a lot which is yeah. interesting to get into but um yeah like what we might see redheads on tv or like redheads in media or whatever but yeah it just delve really deep into what yeah what it means to be a red hair girl mm-hmm. um and yeah I, and I, how i don't know <laughs> i don't know what it means to be honest right because it, it almost seems like a uh what are those ink blot tests where it's like they used to use them in 
psychiatry where they'd show you a picture of like a splotch and then it's like what do you see in it i, I don't yeah. know i feel like that's what sherry kramer is doing with the red-haired woman it's like everyone yeah. sees something different but um but yeah you're saying that made me think about this line that Marilyn has where she's talking about her father when she was a kid hearing her father telling her brothers now i'm gonna read i remember my father telling my brothers when we were little you can take out all the flashy blondes you want, do what you want with them in the backseat of the car. But when you marry, marry Mousy Brown. And then Jean says, your father really said that? And Marilyn says, but what do you do with the redheads? I wanted to ask him. He never said. Which is mm. like this idea that somehow gender roles are also um, inscribed in the next generation, like that are dependent on hair color, a woman's hair color. Mm. And that kind of dictates who she's supposed to be and what kind of a role she's supposed to play in a man's life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking like, you know, when we think of blondes, mm. like, oh, blondes have more fun. Blondes are, you know, like... All these stereotypes are... Yeah, yeah. Like bombshell blonde, you know? And, um, and they're like typed a certain way and when you think of a blonde woman is like, that's, that's how they should be. Right. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that, that women's personality is supposed is embodied by the hair and the color and, right. then, and the play is sort of like being self-aware of that and like pointing that out. Yeah. And that the idea of having red hair is somehow associated with lying or like dishonesty mm. in some way that like, Right away, yeah, you were that, talking about the yeah. Irish thing. So right away, Jean, when she's introducing Marilyn, she says um, she's a more honest redhead. Her hair is naturally the color mine is on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, she takes it several steps redder, brighter, but notice no brassy highlights, no giveaway tones. She takes it to a shade found only on young Irish girls who live in the green hills where the deaths are still numbered in hundreds. It's this idea that like, Red hair is somehow both um, false and more true. And I don't know. She, somehow Sherry Kramer is like walking this line where it can be both things at once mm. in the play. It's really interesting. I don't think I've ever read a play quite like this before. Yeah, same. It's um, like it's it's so um, – well, and, and – we should talk about the grief as well, but it's like, it's like really a concept play. It's looking at this concept of red hair. Yeah. Yeah, It definitely felt like more like an exploration Mm. of an idea, like a concept, like you said, more than rather than like, like here's a linear story from Mm -hmm. beginning to the end and like what we're going to learn. Yeah. And the beginning kind of, it felt like it, it reminded me a little bit of like, Baltimore Waltz. Like, oh, totally. That's how it, that's what it felt like at first. Is like you, there's something happening, or like between two people, you, there's something you want. The play is trying to explore. You're gonna learn more of later eventually. But even mm-hmm. that, I felt like it's a little more linear than this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you're right. It's this idea that there's a death mm-hmm. that we're kind of circling around, but not looking right at until the end. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the structure of the play. 
Well, it, I don't know. It feels very circular to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, of course, I've been thinking so much about grief because of losing my mom. But it, it it's really mm-hmm. interesting to read a play that's like, um, so, so it seems like we just go in this kind of spiral where we're keep we keep going around the same um, conversational pattern and. Jean and Marilyn keep approaching this moment of where they received the phone, where Jean received the phone call about her brother's death, but they don't mm-hmm. actually go into that moment until act two. And so we keep seeing them like, and Marilyn is kind of trying to lead Jean into that moment. And then Jean keeps darting away or trying yeah. to change the story. But since it's something that's already happened, it's in the past, she can't change it. And so instead she keeps kind of returning to the beginning of it and then um, going back. So it, yeah, it felt very circular or spiral like to me um, that we're, we're retreading the same ground over and over again. And then eventually we get closer to the center, to that particular moment of the phone call. Um, Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about the structure? Um, first of all, the play starts like, I think like three pages of like Jean, just kind of a full yeah. monologue. Yeah. Um, and the sentences of it, like reader, uh, listeners, if you have a chance to look at the play, like the sentences are pretty short, like they're, they're short, concise, descriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's like, they're so descriptive in a way that you, they're all visuals. Like you hit an image of each from the, each sentence. Um, and it's not till like page you know, four, three pages, four pages until you, we introduce Marilyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, gosh, I, yeah, spiral is such a good, good way to describe it. Um, I, ink blots is also a good way to think about <laughs> it. Like the, the, it just felt like it was starting somewhere and then it was kind of going all different directions in a way that, um, like each scene or each beat was doing something different from Mm -hmm. what it was doing previously, like from a monologue. And then this like banter kind of going back and forth um, to like, it's like, I never, it never like settled in a way that I, you know, that you typically find in a play where you're just going to like get into a story. Right. It was, it, it was so much of like the interaction between the two. I'm so curious about what her writing process was like when she wrote this play. Mm, if, she, if she wrote it from beginning to end or if she had pieces that kind of yeah um, she collaged into place. Yeah. And I think I, I mentioned right before, it was like there was like a, there were mirroring of each other, two characters. Yeah. And so because it, and I think I got that a lot because there was a lot of repetition. There was a lot of like between the two characters sort of almost like, I don't say mimicking, but you know, they would almost mm-hmm. repeat what the other one just said sometimes, but the cadence, something about the cadence, I just felt like it was so similar or like mm-hmm. they were so alike in so many ways. Um, yeah. Which is so interesting because in the first production of it, which is at Woolly Mammoth in 1991, the two actors switched roles every other night. Mm. So um, they were both playing both roles and 
they switched yeah. them, which is, I, don't, I can't imagine doing that. Cause like, what if, with, especially with a play like this, how would you not get confused about who you were playing? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Seriously. And it, I, I really thought for a long time, I thought Marilyn was not real. Like I really thought Marilyn oh, was interesting. Just, you know, like, um, not, I don't say imaginary friend, but like Jean is just like, is um, just kind of talking out loud to some, with someone and, and um, like a version of herself. Like I really, mm-hmm. I, like I had, I really thought for a really long time that Marilyn wasn't real. I mean, I think you could do a, a production of this play where that is the case. I think mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think it's, it is kind of open to interpretation what really happened and what was kind of imagined because they're constantly going back and forth between um, how Jean wants things to have happened or this kind of alternate reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. And then at the end of the play, she she describes driving down the road and seeing um, Marilyn. Well, she describes this woman she sees as Marilyn at age 65. Mm you the way you would look when you were 65. Um, and I think this this could be interpreted either way, that like either we've moved forward in time or we haven't, but she just sees someone who she imagines Marilyn will look like that at 65. So either way, it kind of lends itself to a, a version of reality in which Marilyn isn't real maybe i would like to see both versions one (laughs) real and and when she's not real so i like to see both versions and i like to decide from there (laughs) okay sounds good um yeah what else um yeah and and let's talk about grief just this Mm. idea of grief how i mean i feel like i'm okay so this play, I, just, I mentioned Baltimore Waltz, and mm-hmm. then I with the driving and everything, it also made me learn, made me think of um, how I learned to drive, like those two plays. Yeah, specifically, like I don't know, and they're both Paul Vogel's play, um, and they're all from the nineties. <laughs> so there must have been like a certain style, I guess. Um, That's what it feels like. But it made me really. It just really reminded me for some reason those two plays in some reason, some way. Um, and yeah, the, the core of this play is like this uh, about grief. Jean's mm-hmm. brother, mm-hmm. Um, David, dies, um, and and just kind of grappling with it. it. Like when I read it, like the way it's so circular, the way it's written, the way it describes, or like trying to piece these these moments together. Like it, it, it felt like. It's like how my mind went if I was when I was grieving. Like I'm like, right. It's like this kind of kind of um. I don't say clutter of thoughts, but it is just sort of like all over the place. And I was just like trying to reconcile, trying to figure out like why this happened. Um, yeah. And so that's definitely what it felt like when I was reading these when it Jane Jane. And recollecting and like thinking it, and talking it out loud. Well, and you're talking about trying to make sense. Did you find yourself like 
imagining if things had gone in a different way, like mm-hmm. um, if, you know, if this had happened instead of that, would we be in a different reality where, you know, this person hadn't died? Um, Cause it seems like this plays so much about that. Like Jean imagining, Oh, if I had never answered the phone, then somehow he never would have died. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Um, Yeah, and I think to take it back just for the way the introduction, um, Jean's monologue mm-hmm. in the beginning, and just the way that it's written, it's like it's trying to like piece together some big idea with all these like small this um with a concise sentence of images, like it's trying to piece something together. Where I as a reader, I was like, I'm trying to connect all these string of thoughts together. Mm-hmm. To, and what does this mean? And then so I guess in the same way when I was reading it. Um, that's where my mind was trying to figure out was like trying to figure out the story like what happened to mm-hmm. David um, and trying to through Gene and kind of like I was trying to pick up any context clues you know like what happened um, so that's well and I'm- that's what I think makes this structure so skillful because even though it is kind of circular and non-linear and we're not um, you know it's not a traditional form but she yeah. does withhold till the very end of the play the answer to that question, how did David die? And so it does keep you um, totally engaged and hooked yeah. until the end, um, yeah. which I just think is so – it's so smart of her to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the thing I want to point out is too is um, the moments where Jean is – talking to the audience and then talking mm-hmm. back to Marilyn there. Um, I thought that was so interesting too. Uh, like so skillfully done. It's like, it's not, it's like in the stage directions, but right. not really, it's not really stage directions because she wants to direct something to the audience. Jean is like talking directly and giving you information, but then jumping right immediately into the scene. Yeah, it's very clear. I was never confused about, even when, so there's that part where Marilyn is kind of doing the voices of Jean's parents on the phone. Mm. Um, And and I was never confused about who was talking or who she was playing. I think it's so, um, it's so well done and it's not overwritten. Like you have just enough information to understand what's happening, but it's never too much. So mm-hmm. that was really cool. And it, it was making me think about when I first read this play, when I was first starting to write plays, that idea that you could have characters kind of step into the voices of other characters was so exciting to me because I realized like, oh, you don't need to have a cast of five or six. You can have a cast of two and still mm-hmm. have this scene on the phone with the mom where one of the actors on stage just plays yeah. the voice of the mom. And it's, it, it's, it was making me think I want to show this play to my students because I think that's something um, a lot of my students have trouble with. They have so many characters they want to write, and so they end up with a cast of 10, you yeah, know, and then I'm yeah. like, well, it's going to be hard to find 10 <laughs> actors. Yeah, you know, right. maybe think about doubling, but they they can't find their way into what that doubling would look like. Yeah. And so I – I'm thinking now about teaching this play next fall because it, it's such a great example of what you can do with just two actors. Well, and, and of course, yeah. and the technicians um, yeah. who kind of create the world. But 
Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because even myself, as I was reading, I was like, oh, this is such an interesting way to do two people, like two persons. Yeah. So smart. Yeah. So smart. Um, Because even myself, like I'm like, I'm trying to really push and challenge myself to like write two character plays or four character, just kind of like it's. Because, like, I do rely on, like, having adding characters, walk-ons, and stuff like that as, like, a crutch of some kind mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and, like, and I always have to go back and, like, how is this servicing the play right now? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And just really, like, like, I'd rather just two or three, four, five characters max, like, really sit with them and, like, and explore their character just a bit more. But, yeah, this, this play really showed me um, – just like a very interesting theatrical way of doing two person. That's not, uh, you know, true West. I was going to say that. And then I was like, oh, Sarah's going to be mad. But I was like, yeah, it's such a, it's like, oh, here's another vision of the two character play. That's not a Sam Shepard vision. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's like a, it's a Sherry Kramer vision of the two person play. And, and so many people have followed in the Sam Shepard mold of trying to write two handers. And I wish more people would follow in the Sherry Kramer mold. That's what I'm saying. Here in Beckett's Babies. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, before we move on to glistens, uh, what about smell? What is this? Does this play have a smell for you, Oh, Sam? I forgot about doing that question. Um, okay. French fries. It smells like French fries and like cheap hair dye. Ooh. Yeah, French fries is very good. With yeah, I definitely got French fries. <laughs> um, and um, I guess it's like I smell like cigarettes. Mm. It's like hotel room cigarette, yeah. like French fry eating junk food in a hotel room. Yeah, and motor oil. Motor oil. Wow, this is a lot of smells. Um, very appetizing <laughs> smells. Yum. I would. Say. Yeah. 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 Well, listeners, I hope this talk made you really excited to read this play because I think you should read this play. I want to read more shared yeah. plays. Me too. Yeah. Um, what a what a great dramatist. Yeah. Tell us your thoughts on um, David's Red Hair Death, listeners, and tell us what your favorite Sherry Kramer play is. We want to know. Yeah. Shall we move to Glistens? Shall we? So I have been reading this book by one of my favorite writers, Catherine Schultz. And she's a oh. she's a writer for The New Yorker. And every time I see she's written something, I drop everything to read it because she's such a such a good writer. She wrote this review of a new edition of or a new translation of Bambi, the book that Bambi oh. you know was based it was a, a book first before it was a Disney movie. And so there's like a new translation of the book that just came out and she wrote a review of the book, but the first sentence of her piece in the new yorker was something like it's one of the most famous murders in cinema in the history of cinema (laughs) (laughs) it's about the scene where bambi's mother gets shot anyway my god um this but this book is about the death of her father and then also um falling her falling in love with her the woman who's now her partner and it's called lost and found and it is so beautiful and so well written and so 
such a great reflection of what it is to lose a parent. And if anybody mm-hmm. out there is grieving right now, um, any kind of loss, I really recommend this book because it just she just puts on the page so many things that um, I personally have experienced and like haven't had the words for. So, have you um, read her book Being Wrong? No. Oh, okay. I, I read it and because it was recommended to me because I apparently in college I had a really hard time accepting being wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's shocking to me. <laughs> so yeah, I read it. Um, and she gave a talk at my college, and I feel oh. like I, I, you know, it's when when like Malcolm Gladwell was so big, mm. you know, and I was like, I'm so sick of Malcolm Gladwell, and I felt like Catherine Schultz kind of came in. And I was like, oh, what a like an antidote. I felt yeah, she uh, is an antidote to Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, I was kind of getting so sick true. of her. <laughs> um, but yeah, being wrong is pretty good. All um, right. Yeah, that's my right. lesson. My lesson is I turned 33. What? Um, listeners, you're probably listening to this, and this episode will be released in May, but my birthday was on April 13th. And um, <laughs> I turned 33, and uh, I call it Jesus year. Mm. I think a lot of people call it Jesus year, or is it just me? No, I think a lot of people do. How does it feel? Okay. It feels like I have more health problems than I ever thought I would. Mm. <laughs> just kidding. I don't know. I just I don't I I feel um tired all the time. <laughs> That's just living in LA. Yeah, that could be. Um yeah, I yeah, I'm like this year. I have to say is also like so much is happening in terms yeah. of like clearing stuff, and then I don't know. We're, I don't know. I just feel like I'm like simultaneously like optimistic and excited, and then pessimistic, and mm. just like I have nothing to live for. Oh jeez! <laughs> oh jeez! Um, well, I'm, I'm that much closer to forty. Um, I think the future is bright for you, Sarah. Not that there's anything wrong with being 40. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. It's just, it's that much more closer to uh, death. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, This has been a very death-heavy episode. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think being 33 is great. Yeah. I, I mean, so far, like, my 30s. Like, 20s sucked. Yeah. Like, 20s was, like, I was like an emotional wreck but 30s is like i'm still emotional wreck but i found tools to deal with it you know what i mean if anybody out there is listening to this and you're in your 20s just take it from us it gets better it gets better (laughs) yeah 20s suck yeah yeah 20s sucked um but yeah i like my 30s so far oh good i'm glad i feel sophisticated you are sophisticated and you're right you have so many playwriting things happening yeah so this is a it's jesus ear all right well we can't wait to hear how that goes for you yeah you know how it jesus ear ends right <laughs> <laughs> all right that's all you're gonna start Thanks a new religion am i gonna start a new religion <laughs> oh speaking oh oh my god speaking of religion um i watched Hillsong Exposed. Have you heard of Hillsong? No. It's this like mega church. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's about this mega church that started in Australia that came to the US. And I remember because like growing up in a church, like we sang these 
songs, these worship songs Whoa. that Hillsong made contemporary and popularized in like modern church or something. Whoa. But um, it, this documentary was all about what was going on at this big mega church and like this like oh there's like pedophilia there's just something so gross and then there's like sexual um harass like assaults and like oh my why god why would i want to watch this i i didn't say you should watch it oh. <laughs> okay <laughs> i just like i just watched it and i was like whoa i it it just made me really rethink about like wow i the fact that this this institution was so popular, so big mm-hmm. that a small little Korean church that I went to was singing their songs. Mm-hmm. Like that's how big they were and popular they were that they were able to incept a little Korean church to like to sing wow. their songs. Like that's just I just it just blew my mind that like institutions like this. Then I was like, well, and how corrupt they are and um, influential, influential. Yeah, so. Yeah, it was like a, it was a, one of the first mega churches that you know, like Justin Bieber, like celebrities were going to Justin Bieber, and and wow. they got more people. Like it exploded, and I think it's still big today. Even maybe your church was like, "This is how we get Sarah to be accepting of all these songs," is because Justin Bieber is doing it, so she'll want to. <laughs> oh jeez, no. Um, yeah, but that's probably why. Um, but yeah. Uh, Hillsong exposed it was very interesting. Anyways, Jesus here, lost and found. Let's go. All right. <laughs> Have a good week, everybody. Have Thanks a good for one. listening. Tell your friends. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting please be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening.